Good morning, clerks. Welcome back to another episode of The Clerk Commute. Hi, clerks, and welcome back to this episode of The Clerk Commute. I am Lauren, and this is Brendan, my co-host. Today, we are going to be reviewing the approach to chest pain in the emergency department. This episode was edited by Dr. Jacqueline Walensky, staff emergency physician at the University Health Network and an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at U of T. Okay, Brendan, let's get started. You are a CC3 on your emergency medicine block, and you're asked to see Mr. G, a 60-year-old male who is urgently presenting with new onset chest pain. He appears unwell, and he's clutching his chest. What do you do? What are the possible causes of his chest pain? All right, Lauren, let's get started. So first, when dealing with any patient that may be unwell or unstable, I want to remind our listeners that as a clerk, it's very appropriate to call the resident or staff you're working with to come urgently assess a patient if you're ever concerned about their well-being, especially when working in the emergency room. So when dealing with chest pain, my first step is to determine if it's emergent or non-emergent. The emergent causes of chest pain can be life-threatening, so it's very important to see the patient and rule them out as soon as possible. When I'm thinking of emergent causes of chest pain, I like to use a mnemonic called PETMAC to remember my differential. So for this mnemonic, P stands for pulmonary embolism, E stands for esophageal rupture, T stands for tension pneumothorax, M stands for myocardial infarction or MI, A stands for aortic dissection, and C stands for cardiac tamponade. And now let's quickly go over some of the non-emergent causes. I don't have a mnemonic here, so I like to use an anatomy-based approach. First, I think of non-emergent cardiac causes, which includes stable angina and pericarditis. Next, I think of respiratory causes, including pneumonia, pleural effusion, and malignancy. Then I think of GI causes, which include peptic ulcer disease, esophagitis, GERD, esophageal spasm, pancreatitis, and cholecystitis. We must also consider MSK causes of chest pain, which include rib fracture and costochondritis. And lastly, while these don't really fit into the anatomy-based approach, we must also remember panic attacks and herpes zosters on the chest wall as other possible causes of non-emergent chest pain. Wow, Brendan, that was a great differential. Thank you so much. So now that we've, re- that we've reviewed the differential, we would like to start thinking about what to do with this patient. Remember, he's in the emergency department. So what we wanna focus on is the emergent causes of chest pain. What do you want to do first? Well, Lauren, in the emergency department, a good first step is to always quickly eyeball the patient to see if they're stable or unstable. And a good way to look at this is to take the patient's chart and check their vitals. That is right. So on his chart, you see that Mr. G's most recent vitals were the following heart rate of 98, respiratory rate of 20, blood pressure of 125 over 80, oxygen oxygen saturation of 98% on room air, and a temperature of 37.5. When you walk in to see him, a quick general examination shows an older male who looks slightly unwell, he's mildly diaphoretic, he's dyspneic, and he is clutching his chest. What would you do? Well, as a clerk, the best thing in this situation to do would probably be to call the attending staff a resident. The reason being is that Mr. G is most likely having an MI um, at this time. And what makes you think that? Well, just based on his age and sex, he's at an intermediate risk for coronary artery disease. Additionally, he's diaphoretic, dyspneic, and clutching his chest wall, all of which increase my suspicion of MI. 
However, it is also important to remember that MRIs can present differently in other populations and may not always present like this. For example, older females may present with fatigue and their pain may feel different, so they may not be clutching their chest, but that's something we can tease out on the history. Okay, great. And one last thing, are there any other life-threatening causes you would want to consider at this time? Yeah, so it's hard to rule anything out just yet, but the vitals do give us a clue. Let's go back to my mnemonic of emergent chest pain, PETMAC. Without any significant hypoxemia, pulmonary embolism is less likely on my differential. Esophageal rupture and tension pneumothorax can be preceded by a traumatic injury, which Mr. G doesn't seem to have based on general inspection. We can also rule out tension pneumothorax quickly by auscultating his chest. If he was having a tension pneumothorax, there would be absent breath sounds in the area of the pneumothorax. Aortic dissection is also low on my differential, as Mr. G is not hypotensive. Typically, patients having an aortic dissection will be, hypote will be hypotension as hypotensive as a result of volume loss. The absence of hypotension also helps to rule out cardiac tamponade because it's part of Beck's triad, which can be seen in acute cardiac tamponade. Great, thanks, Brendan. But before we move on, do you mind just telling our listeners what Beck's triad is? Of course. So Beck's triad refers to three symptoms that are common but not always present in cardiac tamponade, and they include hypotension, elevated JVP or a pulsating neck, and muffled heart sounds. Okay, great. So back to Mr. G. What would we do about Mr. G now? Yeah, so since we're a little fearful of Mr. G's state deteriorating quickly, we want to set things up for a code. Consider getting two large bore IVs and cardiac monitors set up. We can then send out blood work, including a CBC, creatinine, glucose, liver function tests, CK, and troponin. Lastly, we would need an urgent ECG. We would then review the ECG with the attending physician to look for any acute rhythm or rate abnormalities, as well as any ST elevations. Amazing. Okay, so you review with your attending and they feel that Mr. G has stable vitals and there are no concerning features on ECG. Your attending now asks you to take a complete history for Mr. G. All right. So as always, I start by introducing myself, and then I want to get a better sense of this chest pain. I do so by using the OPQRST approach, asking about onset, position, quality, radiation, severity, and timing of the pain, as well as if this pain has ever happened for this patient before. Okay. So this is the history that you get back. Um, he replies, Doc, I'm not sure what happened. Earlier today, I was walking my dog with my wife and I started to get this pain across my chest. The next thing I knew, I was on the ground and the paramedics were putting me on the stretcher. Right now, my pain is in the middle of my chest. It feels tight as if someone is sitting on my chest. The pain is radiating into my neck and left arm. I rate the pain an eight out of 10. The pain is constant and I've been having the pain like this on and off for the last week, but never this severe. I was supposed to see my family physician about it next week. Okay, great. So now I want to get a sense about any associated symptoms, and this would include things like nausea, vomiting, shortness of breath, diaphoresis, palpitations, and lightheadedness. These can all occur with an MI. Okay, great. So to answer the questions, he, re he replies that he feels a bit nauseous and he is feeling short of breath. Okay, so now I have a few more specific questions to ask to help me assess for some of the other emergent causes of chest pain. First, I wanna know, is the pain worse with deep breathing? This is often seen in cases of PE. This is not seen, this is not seen with Mr. G. One thing that I like to do when I'm in the eMERGE is ask the patient to take a big deep breath with me. Sometimes patients will say, I think it might hurt when I breathe, but if you take a big deep breath in and it doesn't cause pain in the ED with the patient, then they do not have pleuritic chest pain. 
Excellent, that's helpful. So now I want to ask him if the pain is worse when he leans forward or back. If the pain changes with position, this could be indicative of cardiac tamponade. Okay, so Mr. G replies that the pain is not worse when he changes position. Again, this is another test that you can do with the patient in the ED. If they're not sure, have them lean forward, have them lie back. See what this does for their chest pain. Excellent. Okay, so now I want to complete my history by asking about the patient's past medical history, family history, if they're taking any medications, and if they have any allergies, as well as a social history, including their habits and lifestyle. Great. So Mr. G has had no major surgeries. He has hypertension and high cholesterol. His dad had a stroke at 65, but his mom is healthy. He tells you that his medications are significant for Ramipril and Atorvastatin. He has no allergies. He smokes about a half pack a day of cigarettes and for the and he's done this for the last 20 years. Okay, so let's pause here for a second. It only took a few minutes to get an informative history about chest pain for Mr. G. Now it should be easier to organize our differential of emergent causes of chest pain. Okay, let's go back through that mnemonic again. Okay, great. So starting with the P and PET math, we know that PE is lower on my differential as the pain is not worse with deep breathing. As well, he has no previous surgeries or history of malignancy, which would make PE more likely. Next, if we consider esophageal rupture, it is also lower on my differential because there is no recent esophageal instrumentation. The patient is not having forceful vomiting or retching. And again, there was no traumatic injury. If we move on to tension pneumothorax, this is also lower on my differential as the patient is vitally stable and there was no preceding trauma. Let's skip over MI for now and come back to it. Aortic dissection is also lower on my differential as the pain Mr. G describes does not fit with the classic presentation of aortic dissection. Typically, in aortic dissection, we have severe retrosternal pain, 10 out of 10, that radiates to the back. This is suspicious for aortic dissection. And as previously mentioned, he is vitally stable. Someone with aortic dissection will likely be hypotensive. Cardiac tamponade is also lower on my differential because the pain does not change with position and we do not see any of the features of Beck's triad. So this leaves us with MI. The quality of Mr. G's pain is suggestive of MI. Typically, a patient will describe a crushing, tightening pain in the middle of the chest radiating to the left arm and neck. As well, he does have risk factors for MI, including hypertension, dyslipidemia, and is currently a smoker. Okay, great. Thank you so much. That was a very helpful summary. Okay, so what would you do about physical exam in this case? Okay, so beginning with the general appearance of the patient, I would be sure to comment on their coloring, their mental status, whether or not they appear to be in distress, and whether or not they are diaphoretic. Vital signs we already went over, but at this point, it would probably be important to do a repeat set of vitals. Then I would want to look at the patient's JVP to look for elevation and check for peripheral edema, and then complete a full respiratory, cardiac, and abdominal exam. Okay, so the history and physical are done in this case, and let's talk next about investigations. All right, at this point, we can repeat the ECG to confirm that there are no new ST elevations. The blood work has come back, and the troponin is at a 3,000, indicating cardiac muscle ischemia, which is seen in MI. There are no ST elevations then, so this would be considered an end STEMI. If there are ST elevations, we call this a STEMI. A chest x-ray should be completed as well to rule out pulmonary edema and cardiomegaly, and cardiology should be consulted. Okay, so while we wait for cardiology to come down, what would you do for immediate management of an N STEMI? Yeah, so when I, again, I like to use a mnemonic for the management of this called BMON, which stands for a beta blocker. 
E, which stands for anoxaparin, another anticoagulant like heparin, M, which stands for morphine for pain control, and O as in oxygen, because it's important to give supplemental oxygen if the patient's saturation drops below 92% on room air. The A stands for ASA, and N stands for nitroglycerin. Okay, maybe we should repeat that mnemonic one more time just for our listeners. Sure, sounds good. So I like to use the BMOAN mnemonic when managing MI in the emergency department. The B stands for a beta blocker. The E stands for anoxaparin, an anticoagulant. The M stands for morphine for pain control. The O reminds me to give the patient oxygen if their saturation drops below 92% on room air. And the A stands for ASA and the N for nitroglycerin. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for running through the management of an N-STEMI in the emergency room. Remember that nitroglycerin is a vasodilator and can help both minimize cardiac ischemia and anginal pain, but it is contraindicated in patients who used sildenafil, so you have to ask about this. Awesome. So that is an overview of what can be done in the ED to manage an MI, but I just briefly wanted to touch on the management outside of the ED for Mr. G that is typically coordinated with the cardiology team. So we can consider rapid reperfusion of the cardiac muscle tissues using a technique called primary percutaneous coronary intervention or PCI. This is the goal with either an NSTEMI or a STEMI. If PCI cannot be performed rapidly, patients with a STEMI can be treated with fibrolytic therapy. Fibronolysis is not recommended in the patient with an NSTEMI. Um, Therefore, these patients should be treated with medical management if they are low risk of coronary events or if percutaneous coronary intervention cannot be performed. And lastly, post-myocardial infarction care should be closely coordinated with the patient's cardiology and based on secondary prevention strategies to prevent recurrence, morbidity, and mortality. Amazing. Thank you so much. So we definitely covered a lot today, and I'm going to do my best to highlight the key points for our listeners. Okay, so... When you are seeing a patient in the ED with chest pain, we first want to eyeball them and make sure they are stable. If we have concerns, we would call our staff right away. Then we want to assess for emergency causes of chest pain, which might be life-threatening. Today, we use the mnemonic PETMAC strategy to remember them. Finally, when it comes to the management of an NSTEMI, there are lots of things that need to be done. And we can remember the basics of ED management using the BMOAN, B-E-M-O-A-N mnemonic. Exactly, Lauren. Thanks for that quick summary. And thank you everyone for listening. Remember to follow the Clerk Commute on Twitter to stay up to date on the latest episodes and announcements, and we'll see you all again soon.